The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. What do we do in an age of constant misinformation being spread online? Should the government intervene in the algorithm bubbles that are keeping people from seeing through the conspiracy theories? At Antidote 2022, journalist Karen Middleton was joined by former PM Malcolm Turnbull AC and Ed Coper, author of Facts and Other Lies, to discuss how false information affects governments delivering services and asks whether social media networks are out of control and posing a threat to democracy. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Good afternoon. My name's Karen Middleton. I'm the Chief Political Correspondent with The Saturday Paper, and this afternoon I will be your chair for this session. I'd like to introduce two panellists. We don't need to introduce them, but I'm going to anyway. Beside me here, Malcolm Turnbull AC, former Prime Minister of Australia, author of the memoir A Bigger Picture, a lawyer, a former journalist, who also served as communications minister and owned an internet company, Aussie Mail. And beside him, digital communications and campaigns specialist Ed Coper, who was instrumental in growing Australia's first online political movement, GetUp, and in Change.org's global expansion. Ed's book, Facts and Other Lies, deals directly with the issues that we're discussing today. Welcome to you both. Welcome to our audience. So let's get to today's subject matter. I'm going to refresh your memory about the theme of our discussion. Conspiracy theories and false news are spread by social media with real and dangerous consequences for society. Is it time for governments to consider dealing with algorithm bubbles? Should governments step in to protect us from big social media? Now, I'd like to take a step back, first of all, and just define what it is we're talking about. So, Ed, I'm going to start with you. There are a few threads to all of this, but can we cover the basics first on social media algorithms? Like, in a nutshell, what are they and how do they work? Uh, Well, anyone who had a social media account in the very early days of, of social media might remember there's a reason why we call it a timeline, because it used to just list chronologically everything that everyone you were friends with would post. Um, Now, of course, very quickly, social media became so popular that the volume of information out there became so great that it became impractical to just show people everything. You know, people didn't want to see 20 photos of of cats and people's breakfast and things they weren't interested in. Or the friend that posts 7,000 times a day. 7,000 times a day, you know, the social media company wanted to give you a good experience on their platforms. So to deal with the volume of information, they decided what to show you in your feed. And in order to do that, uh, an algorithm is simply a formula which takes various things into account that the social media platform will decide for you and to say, well, you know, here's what we know about Karen. We know she likes cats. And so here's a picture of a cat. That's how the algorithm is supposed to work. Of course, how it works in, in, in practice, which we'll talk about, is it'll say, hey, you look like a racist. Here's some neo-Nazi content. Have a bit more, right. So. <clears throat> Thanks for that, yeah. <laughs> So, 
Ed, you've written quite a bit about how these algorithms actually work on our brains. Can you talk to us a bit about that, about the impact, the impact it actually has in the brain? Yeah, so it's, it's a very um, effective thing because what algorithms do is basically map onto our human characteristics. So a lot of people look at the problem of disinformation and they think, well, those people are irrational, whereas I'm rational, so therefore I don't engage in, in fake news. Um, but that's not what's happening. We all have rational and irrational parts, and what the algorithms have proved, proven very good at is by activating our irrational parts. And so the types of things that over human evolution that we decided were important to us as human beings, well, the truth isn't one of them, unfortunately. We mm. think it is, but it really is not important to us as a society in terms of our cognition. The things that are important are agreeing with our peers, forming cohesive social groups and, uh, and, and quantifying how many other people think the same as us. That's what social media and algorithms have, have enabled us to do and that's why they're so powerful because they activate the basic levels of human cognition that we want to receive information through. So they're overstimulating almost that part of us. Exactly. There's an example, a recent example from the Wall Street Journal that I know you are familiar with um, involving teenage girls on TikTok. Can you talk to us quickly about that? Yeah, and this is an incredibly worrying thing that, that a lot of uh, you know, doctors are trying to get to the bottom of. There'd been some research when, with, uh, with groups um, that develop tics, you know, like Tourette's-like symptoms, so verbal tics, yeah. twitches, full body twitches, saying things uh, without control. And they'd found that, um, they'd, they'd noticed before the social media age, sometimes they would bubble. Uh, there was a case in upstate New York where a high school, a lot of people developed the same kind of tics. And so, you know, the doctors thought, well, maybe there is some kind of, of phenomenon here where you see others with these sorts of symptoms that you subconsciously develop them yourself. Now, bring along the internet and TikTok, a lot of people with Tourette's and with tics started making content on TikTok about their experience. And all of a sudden, around the world, in America, in the UK, it happens in Australia here too, teenage girls who normally were, were suffering from anxiety and depression and mental health episodes around the pandemic that we, knew, we know increased, started developing the same tick-like symptoms and um, quite debilitating. And so there's this, been this real rush to understand how is this happening? How is this contagion spreading through TikTok um, where people around the world, mostly teenage girls, are all of a sudden exhibiting very serious and severe physical symptoms. And they're not mimicking, they're actually... The they're not developing... mimicking, it's, it's, it's uncontrolled from them. It, it's getting in the way of their everyday lives. They're seeking treatment for it, you know. Some of the statistics where the doctors are saying they might say, see one or two people with these symptoms in a month are now seeing 20 or 30 people in a month with the same symptoms. Scary. Malcolm, I know you've got some concerns about... the. TikTok in particular and the way those algorithms work. What's, mm. what, what is your concern in particular about that platform? Okay, well, well TikTok, of course, is videos, uh, so it is much harder to search. You can't... Uh, it's not possible to, for even for a computer to scan everything that is on TikTok. Uh, it, is, it is being used at the moment in Australia by about 7.5 million people over the age of 18, and probably quite a few under the age of 18, I'm sure as well, 
they're spending on average about 24 hours a month on the platform and really nobody knows what they're being served. Uh, it isn't, uh, again, it's not possible to, to scan it or monitor it uh, in, in the way that you can the text-based platforms. Um, it's, uh, TikTok is able to uh, serve its, uh, its users uh, content that is uh, not just designed to you know, keep them on the platform for as long as possible, which of course is the objective generally of these algorithms, but they can serve them content based on their age or their demographics, uh, where they live, uh, what their other interests are, what they've searched for when they use the search function within the app. Uh, it's, it's extraordinarily influential and very powerful. And of course, it's owned by a company that is ultimately uh, answerable to the Communist Party of China. So that may or may not be a matter of concern. I think it should be, but... So they're zeroing in on our biases even more precisely than we are kind of conscious of. The, yeah, they, they, you see, if you, go, if you go back to the pre-internet era, you could say that about most media that they were aimed to reach a mass market. The more eyeballs, the better. Mm. Uh, that's why the first edition of the Sydney Morning Herald had on its front page, you know, in moderation, placing all my glory while Tories call me Whig and Whigs are Tory. Now, the old Fairfaxes were not particularly socially progressive, but nonetheless, they wanted the more readers, the more they could sell their advertisements for. What technologies enable us to do is to make money out of narrow casting. You see that with mainstream media. I mean, look at Fox News. It is deliberate, for example, Sky After Dark here or many other online, you know, streaming platforms are absolutely narrow casting but then you get into the ultimate narrow casting through these applications. So what is the problem there? The problem is that we are no longer sharing the same media or the same facts. Mm. And that, you know, th that's where society starts to fray and that's where you get... That's what leads to a mob of people, you know, going to try to overthrow the government of the United States on January 6th 2021 because they believe that, and it's more than a small minority believe, believe that uh, Donald Trump won the 2020 election. So disinformation and misinformation, we, you know, we worry about foreign actors being involved, but we have quite a lot of it being peddled by domestic uh, players as well. And it's, it's the way it corrodes our society, whether it is in the manner Ed just described with teenage girls, or really shaking the foundations of our democracy is very profound. I want to get to the intersection between algorithms and disinformation because that's a particular kind of problem that you've just touched mm. on. But, you know, we heard recently from um, a former employee of Facebook, uh, Frances Haugen, who's been speaking. She leaked a whole lot of documents from Facebook about the way these algorithms are working. She, you know, she talks about Mark Zuckerberg, the, the head of what's now called Meta, always saying that they're just holding up a mirror, they're just reflecting back to us based on our activity, what we want to hear. But she talked in a recent interview on um, 7.30 about... She gave an example and said they'd done an experiment. They'd set up a, a blank account on Instagram, which they also own, 
no activity at all, so nothing for the algorithm to work with from a standing start. They searched for healthy eating and healthy recipes, and from there, they clicked on everything that was thrown up as a suggestion and all the hashtags. And within two weeks, they were um, seeing pro-eating disorder content, and within three weeks, pro-self-harm content. So this is not benign, is it? Like, how concerning is it that this is actively engaging, it appears, in this kind of material? Malcolm, have you got a view? Or... Well, right, it's, it's, well it's, it's, it's hugely concerning, and, you know, we, we really... We need to, if not unfriend the algorithm, we probably need to do that, but we certainly need to... We need transparency. That's why, the, you know, we're looking forward to the operation of the European Digital Services Act, which is designed to make these algorithms uh, transparent. But above all, you have to hold these platforms responsible. You know, the... the uh, I think it was Rudyard Kipling, many, you know, probably nearly 100 years ago, who, talking about Lord Beaverbrook, a Canadian, you know, newspaper baron in the early part of the uh, 20th century, and uh, he said um, he talked about uh, the media having the prerogative of the harlot, all care and no responsibility, which I think is a bit tough on again. A thank bit, you. a bit, a bit, <laughs> bit a bit tough on harlots, I might say. <laughs> but the but 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 the point is, you know, and Beaverbrook took the view that he could put governments in, put them out, and he was never didn't have to take responsibility. Well, the answer is, publishers have to take responsibility. And platforms who have algorithms and that are, that are operating in such a way or are being able to be used in such a way as to promote disinformation, you know, dangerous disinformation, both politically and, and physically and medically, if you like, uh, they, have to be, they have to hold, take responsibility. And what troubles me is that you see again and again an absolute abdication of responsibility. It's not just Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, you know, Rupert Murdoch's uh, Fox News was the single biggest amplifier of Trump's lie that he had won the 2020 election. Now, that's a fact. There's no question about that. Nobody would argue with that. The single biggest amplifier of that and we saw where that led. So if you propagate lies, there are consequences. Now, you say, free speech. Of course, we all believe in free speech. We believe, and our whole premise for the First Amendment in the US and our belief in free speech is that in the marketplace of ideas, you know, the truth will prevail. Well, we're drowning in lies. And what's worse is that the marketplace doesn't exist because people are in an information silo. So, yes, there may be truthful statements and factual statements and well-researched statements, but if you're only in the silo of lies, then you're never going to see them. Mm. You're not in the marketplace of ideas. You're actually in a silo of propaganda. Well, I'd, I'd probably take the analogy one step further and say the marketplace of, of ideas, the market has decided and it's back disinformation and that mm. that's the problem, is that when you put these things uh, up against each other, the platform algorithms have decided that things that are emotive, hyper-partisan outrage, 
largely bullshit, will win every time and significantly over the things that have nuance and balance and facts and science and research behind them. And so to, to, to bring it back to the, this point of, of how does the algorithm get from someone who enters a healthy eating search to self-harm content, I mean, there's a, I think it's worth just explaining, you know, the degree to which the algorithm is responsible. So it's meant it's 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 deliberately giving you more and more extreme content to hold your attention. Is that the, right? the, you know the the platforms realised very quickly that the algorithm has to be much more sophisticated than just showing you things that you've already engaged with because people got bored very quickly. So YouTube's algorithm used to be, oh, you've just watched. Um, a video about Shane Warne's bowling, I'm going to show you another video about Shane Warne's bowling. Yeah. And the, the people got very bored. They said, I've just watched that video. So they... So now they show you John yeah. Howard's bowling? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. As I say, very harmful content. <laughs> and uh, the, the, there was this fascinating... <laughs> Can I just say, with great credit to both of you, that was not rehearsed. <laughs> This is, this is improv at its best. Well, well, we just decided, Malcolm, that you, you were going to go after Fox News and the, the link to January 6th, and, uh, and we just stick to the, the slapstick comedy. Mm. Um, <laughs> so so the, the, this guy gave all of his YouTube uh, records of every video he'd ever watched to the New York Times so they could unpack it, because he'd been radicalised. And it was... It, forensic detail with, with how he started watching very innocuous videos that one by one led him to a really dark and harmful place was absolutely fascinating when you unpack how this happens. And you, you mentioned Frances Haugen, who was the Facebook whistleblower, and the, the things that she revealed and, and that other uh, um, anonymous whistleblowers have, have revealed in Facebook shows that the company knows how harmful yeah. these things are and they know how much trouble they would be in if the public knew those things. So there was, a, there was an internal report at Facebook that found that of all the people who belong to these fringe neo-Nazi violent right-wing extremist groups on Facebook, two-thirds of them were there because the Facebook algorithm had recommended that group as something they should join. So... When you think about extremism <clears throat> as something that happens necessarily on the fringes, people are encountering that in the mainstream and it pushes them out. So we need to be worried about how are they encountering it, not at the fringes, but in a something that starts very innocuously. So that's the problem that we're talking about. Let's talk about how we can deal with this in a legislative sense. I mean, <clears throat> we've got an online safety act in Australia that I think came into effect last year, but my reading of it is that it deals with the sort of end point. It deals with the content. So it deals with extreme se sexual or violent explicit content, but it isn't dealing with the process that leads you to the content. Is it possible... Ed first, and Malcolm, you've obviously had a lot of legislative experience with this, is it possible to legislate around these algorithms? There's the question of transparency and then there's the question of legislating to control them in a preventative manner. How do, how do we do it? Well, it's incredibly difficult because technology moves at the speed of light and, and governments, which is normally a good thing, uh, really follow society's lead and incrementally and gradually <coughs> increase, uh, introduce regulation about new challenges that appear. Now, that's a really problematic mismatch because governments have proven very, uh, to, be, to be very poor at regulating the internet. 
which is changing all the time and evolving all the time. And one of the issues with the way that, uh, that regulation is normally approached is that, as you say, it deals with specific bits of content after they've been published, ways that you can put that genie back in the bottle, which is very hard to deal with it. There's the need for regulation, uh, absolutely, and there's, there's need for better regulation, absolutely. Um, there have been good things that have been done. The e-safety commissioner is a good thing. We have a regulator now whose powers began as very narrow to do with um, children's e-safety and, and cyberbullying is now in place to be someone who's tasked with regulating social media and the internet. That's a good thing. But we've got to start with the much bigger picture realisation that the problem that we're talking about is not always just about a specific piece of of disinformation that has emerged and needs to be corrected. We're talking about a society-wide breakdown in the way that we receive information, form opinions, engage with each other, engage with issues around us like the pandemic. And when a, when a challenge like that arises, we find that everything has been eroded and the, the landscape with which we get our information has so fundamentally broken down that a little bit of regula regulation at the end point is not going to address the root causes that led us to into the crisis in the first place. So, Malcolm, the, the European legislation you mentioned mm. will deal with transparency issues, but how well does it deal with the algorithms um, preventatively themselves in any other way? I mean, it seems to me that we're dealing now and we're in a domain where it's corporate activity without conscience. Can we police the morals of corporations in such a way that they behave according to call me old-fashioned, the standards that we expect in a free and democratic society that are protecting people from this kind of abuse? Mm, that's a really, really, really important question. So many of our institutions, including our political institutions, are based on the assumption that the people who occupy them are people of good character, or mostly of good character. Oh, and character. they are. And the... <laughs> no, but, no, but, you know, seriously, the... the um, you know, this is one of the things that's troubled me uh, in, you know, in recent years and uh, particularly since I left government uh, has been the increasing normalisation of lying. Now, obviously, Trump was a real, you know, path blazer, if that's the right term, in the normalisation of lying. Uh, you've seen it in the media, the the the... Again, I, I mentioned Fox News earlier, but it is, it is, a, cl it is a classic case, and in fact, probably the mo single most concerning case of a news service, a very popular and success, financially successful news service, which pushes political propaganda, including lies, large and small, but most consequentially, the one about the 2020 election. I mean, you know, we, we have to... You know, sometimes you could say, oh, what's that got to do with us? That's in America. The reality is the consequences of uh, political breakdown in the United States or the demise of democracy in the United States, which Americans, I might say, are much more concerned about than Australians are, is just as consequential for America as it is for us. So, you know, we, we've got to be really on our guard to make sure that we call out lying where, where we see it, and also that we have institutions that are resilient. Now, you know, Ed had a bit to do with the 
uh, teal campaigns in the last election. Let me say, just say a little bit about this. Why do we think we are not as vulnerable to disinformation through social media or through mainstream media as the Americans have been? I think, I think there are at least four things that might, you could say the big thing is Australians are more sensible than Americans, but that's possibly, that's possibly something you can only say to an Australian audience. But, but, the, but I would say clearly we have compulsory voting. We have our electorates are not gerrymandered. You know, they're drawn by the Electoral Commission objectively. And we have preferential voting. And all of that means that where a party or a candidate runs off to the extreme, there is, they do so at the risk of a more centrist, uh, you know, candidate coming through the centre, which is essentially what the Teals were in all of those former uh, very safe, larger liberal electorates. And on the information side, we do have the public broadcasters. Obviously, the ABC is the bigger one, but there's also SBS. And, you know, while everyone will complain about this program and that program and so forth, by and large, they are still what Americans would call reality-based news media. <laughs> as opposed to... This is, this is a technical term. As opposed to non-reality-based news media. Sounds like alternative facts again. It is. So I think, you know, but, but we can't... You, the, one, the one thing you can't do in this time, and Ed makes a point about these changes being so rapid, you cannot be complacent. And you've got, you've got to... We've got to focus on what we're... You know, what's happening, what's really happening. Now, you mentioned the e-safety commissioner, and Julie Inman Grant is a fantastic e-safety commissioner, none outstanding. Now, when I was communications minister, we established the children's e-safety commissioner, and, you know, we were concerned about, you know, bullying of children online and, you know, information that was harmful to children in different ways. And it, of course, the position has grown into a much larger one, and those reforms were done, uh, you know, during our time in government, very importantly, because we're grappling with something, we're grappling with technology that we basically don't entirely understand. I mean, Sean Howard, who was, the, you know, the founder of Aussie Mail, he was the real brains there. Trevor Kennedy and I were his, his uh, supporters and fellow founders. But Sean always used to say, we've always got lots of technology. What we're short of is technological imagination. Mm. And that's very... Because not only we can't... Uh, often can't think of what we can do with it, but we also can't think through what its consequences are going to be. And so inevitably, we are playing catch-up. So we have to be so... have to be so on the ball. You cannot be complacent about anything in a time of such rapid change. Ed, I want to get you in just a sec to talk to us a bit more about disinformation. But just before we leave this point, Malcolm, you, you were listing just a minute ago the, uh, the things that maybe protect us in our system versus mm. the United States, you know, yep. compulsory voting and the like. And it strikes me, does the absence of a Bill of Rights here protect us a bit? Because the Bill of Rights in the US appears to make it much harder to curtail what people say is free speech. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am a... Look, I, I'm... You know, I believe in free speech, right? I mean, Lucy and I, when we were 
little better than children, you know, spent a lot of time defending an old spy's right to write a book, you may recall, against the British government. Uh, and, um, but I am not a fan of putting generally worded guarantees of human rights in constitutions because you essentially transfer legislative authority to judges and that's okay when the judges are saying the things that you agree with, but if they go the other way, and you've seen that in the United States, it isn't so much fun. It also, uh, the, and I heard, was hearing, uh, listening to Emily Bazelon making this point in another context this morning. Um, it also, you run the risk that if you have social reforms delivered through the courts, you basically relieve people who want those social reforms from the political hard task of getting them done through you know, changing the composition of legislatures and so forth. So I, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying the American Bill of Rights is a bad idea, but I'm just saying, because it's got a whole historical context course, and yeah. so forth, but... You can you over-codify. Know, you, well, you can, you, you just got to be careful what you wish for, because if you, if you have, I mean, the US Supreme Court effectively legalised same-sex marriage in the United States. That could be reversed, okay? We legalised same-sex marriage in Australia by legislation preceded by a national vote with an overwhelming majority. It will never be reversed. Irreversible. Full stop. Debate's over. Mm. That's, the, that's the difference. Very good. Sorry, yeah. go on. There's, uh, I think this is a really important um, discussion to, imp- to, to have in Australia with the comparison to America. So I want to make a couple of points because there's good and bad news. Um, and the first point I would make is, is my American wife's in the audience, so obviously Americans are much more sensible than Australians, I would, <laughs> I would say. But on a very practical level, it, we, we should congratulate ourselves in Australia. There are some things here that mean we're much less susceptible to the US. And, and the, the, the things that Malcolm mentioned are, are, are a big part of them. There's also been studies showed that we are less polarised and societies that are less polarised will punish politic, uh, political leaders for lying more so than highly polarised countries. And we've seen that recently in, in Australia versus the US. But the other side of the coin is if we get too self-congratulatory about these things, we, we mask the fact that they're in fact very fragile mm. and we're definitely heading down the wrong path. So the way that these disinformation ecosystems worked in the US uh, after the 2020 election, we had a lot of those elements here. We had a lot of people online at the grassroots organic level who were getting fed narratives from the US, from the right-wing media in the US and manufacturing themselves about AEC interference and voter fraud and here's an example of some ballots going missing and they were trying to really whip up this frenzy. Uh, And that's how it started in the US. The big difference was it was embraced by the political elites in the US and that's what made it snowball with the media and the grassroots into something that spilled over into the ramparts of the capital with uh, real-world violence. So the only element we didn't have in Australia was a a political, cynical opportunist embracing those fringe theories and really fueling them. And it would have been very alarming, I think, to see what would have happened. I don't think it would have changed the results in the same scale it would, would have in the US, but what it would have done was cleave an entire section 
of the population away from our consensus-based democracy and our political norms, and it's very hard to get them back once they've divorced themselves from that democratic reality. So I want to talk about our structures and how robust they are to withstand something like this, but let's just briefly, if you can, Ed, can tell us what we, what we mean by disinformation, just so people who aren't familiar with the term understand it. It's not the same as misinformation, but what kinds of disinformation do we see? Yeah, and, we, you know, we use the terms fake news, misinformation, disinformation fairly interchangeably these days, but there's some, some key differences. Misinformation is really just any false or faulty information, and sometimes there's very good reasons for that. Sometimes it can be unintentional. Yeah. People can share things. Uh, you know, I, we were talking earlier about the example of these Irish tap dancers outside Buckingham Palace dancing to Another One Bites the Dust. People were sharing that as if it was in response to the Queen. In fact, that was from months ago, but people unintentionally were spreading it as misinformation. But that could be done intentionally for another reason. Well, that's the, that's the difference. So disinformation would be if someone was out there on a mission to deceive others deliberately with that information. And so this is the thing that we need to be worried about. Disinformation is about an ecosystem where there are groups of people who are trying to deceive you for some kind of ulterior motive. Sometimes it's political power, but quite often it's profit. A lot of these things are just highly engaged with on the internet. Yep. Um, there used to be these clickbait farms that would use celebrity gossip or pornography, you know, or cryptocurrency to get people to click on them. Trump really led them to discover that political hyperpartisan disinformation was even more clickable than those, you know, mm. clickbaity things. So there's all sorts of reasons why it happened, but disinformation is where people are trying to deceive you and largely in networks that are organised to spread these false realities for some kind of harm. The, we're talking about, you know, doctored images as well, aren't we? Not like mm. it could be completely false information, it could be slightly altered information where a bit of it is factual, the, the persuasiveness of the kernel of fact in the middle of it. So there's a range of ways this can emerge and be persuasive. Malcolm, the most, um, probably the most prominent example of kind of mass disinformation that we've heard in recent times is the Russian in engagement in the, in the US election um, involving Hillary Clinton and... Mm. and um, alleged, you know, use of emails and Benghazi and the, and the, the whole thing. Um, how prevalent are these kinds of mass uh, disinformation can, campaigns involving foreign governments? I mean, we know that, you know, we, you mentioned China earlier. We know China's engaged in this kind of thing as well. Mm. In your experience as a former prime minister who clearly would have been briefed on such threats, how prevalent are these threats and how do they weigh up against sort of lower level domestic against extremist what, against threats? Against what or? Rupert Murdoch is doing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, I think, uh, I, I think Murdoch is mu much, has much greater impact in terms of disinformation right. uh, than uh, Vladimir Putin or let alone Xi Jinping. Uh, in terms That's of... A smaller day-to-day -day engagement. In, in terms of, yeah, I'm just, no, I'm just, 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 I mean, I'm, it's a serious question. I'm answering it seriously. Yeah. In terms of uh, uh, sort of disinformation campaigns, influence campaigns coming out of China, they tend to be mostly prevalent in Chinese language media. Most of the Chinese language media in Australia more or less follows the same line as the official state media in China. You know, it's a fact. Uh, the Russians uh, have got massive operations, they're much more active, and their general approach is to foment 
discord and disunity in Western societies. So, you know, wherever there's a, a, a you know, a problem, a, you know, or division, you know, racial divisions, political divisions, ethnic divisions, religious divisions, they want to exacerbate it because they're, you know, they're, you know, they see that they're, they're under attack from the West and this is one of the ways they respond. I'll just share with you an interesting bit of research from a guy called uh, Hani Fareed, who's an American researcher in this disinformation area. And he recently found that outside of Twitter, the top five domains shared by prolific dis disinformation spreaders, now these are the domains, these are the platforms, right? Uh, one, youtube.com, two, foxnews.com, three, breitbart.com, four, rumble.com, and five, nypost.com. Uh, <laughs> so of the top five, two belong to Murdoch. So that's quite interesting. Um, the, but it is, but what it, what it underlines is that we've got a, you know, this is not just a problem with the Russians or China or anyone else outside of our societies. This is something that is going on within our societies by major players not just, you know, weird people with, you know, caps, baseball caps with propellers on top. This is, this, is, this is a serious challenge and it is seriously profitable. And the consequences are very, very grave. And again, you know, for the archetypal example of that, you come back to January 6th. But what about, you know, uh, vaccination uh, scepticism, mm -hmm. you know? I mean... Fortunately, we have a greater trust in governments in Australia than the Americans do, so we didn't have the same level of vaccine scepticism and misinformation in Australia. But there are real health consequences, as we know. If you have, if you have an area where people are not getting vaccinated, whether it's for COVID or anything else, there are real problems. And one of the challenges we faced in government, and we did this as both as a federal government and state governments did this, you know, this is why we have rules like no jab, no play, you know, no jab, uh, no pay. So, if, you know, if you, if you don't vaccinate your kid, you're not going to get childcare benefits. Sounds terribly heavy-handed. But you know what? If people are taking unvaccinated children, uh, have got unvaccinated children, and you start getting these diseases that we thought we'd eliminated, start, you know, like polio and so many others, start uh, proliferating in the community, then everyone suffers. So, And there's a polio outbreak in the US at the moment mm. for exactly these reasons. Exactly. So, yeah. It's so, so this is... Um, got to take these things very seriously. And I, and I think that... I think responsibility is the key. I yep. mean, it's just, it's just the... The thing that I... The thing that blows my mind, honestly, with some of these players is just the sheer recklessness of it. You know, they peddling lies that they don't believe, but and they'll say, "Oh, we're just giving people what they want." Well, you know what? If you're in a position of responsibility and power, uh, you should be better than that. But too often, people aren't. There's a, there's a specific example just to 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 go on from that about the link between Russian disinformation and geopolitical interference and how mm. it works. And as Malcolm said, it's exactly right. They pour salt into open wounds that already exist. So 
when 2016 election happened in the US, it, it, it um, provided researchers a lot of opportunity to identify the Russian bots who were spreading disinformation. Mm. And all of the same ones who were spreading the Hillary Clinton email uh, campaign in the US, they were active in Australia. And do you know what they were doing in Australia? They were tweeting uh, tweets that linked uh, Nauru to ISIS. Because why do you do that? Because that's how you divide Australians. You, you find those divisions that were largely created by Rupert Murdoch's uh, media empire and who fuel those divisions, and then you pour salt into those wounds. So I think it's much more important as a society that we, that we pay less attention to the specific cyber defences against that type of interference and more attention to healing those divisions in society that they are exploiting. Just following on from Ed's example, this is, this is another example of strategic targeted disinformation. This was recently um, you know, exposed by uh, the US Department of Defence. Uh, so there's an Australian company, Linus, some of you may be aware of it, that processes rare earths. You know, mine, general, mined in Australia, they've got a processing plant in Malaysia. They're in the process of uh, of establishing one in Texas. It's very important. We are, uh, we are very dependent on China for rare earths that are vital for, for just about all of our, so many of our, uh, you know, technological devices, chips and so forth uh, that we, we need. And so this, this plant in Texas is something that is very much part of our cooperation with the US on a you know, strategic national security basis. There was a disinformation campaign that was fired up uh, where there were accounts, fake accounts set up that impersonated environmental activists in Texas to incite protests against the processing facility. Now, plainly, people that don't have the United States' best interests at heart would have an interest in doing that. And so it's that ability for your... For, uh, for this could be a, a geopolitical rival, let's for example. But what if you decide, what if you're just a, uh, you know, a humble uh, criminal who wants to make money out of driving the price of a stock down uh, so, that you can, so that you can short sell it, drive the price of the stock down and make a lot of money? Again, all of these targeted disinformation mechanisms are available. So hence the need for hyper-awareness. And the Linus example shows that this is not speculation. Thank you. I have, I'm getting the questions now. And before we come to them, I just want to come back to this point, Eddie, you made about the, the mm. leader and the structures that we have around in the, in the event that we get a leader who's not benign. And it goes to the point about trust, I guess, and trust in institutions. Um, we saw an example recently where our former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has talked in a sermon in Perth about how uh, we shouldn't have trust in government. You can't trust governments. And uh, um, how, how robust... Yeah, I know, <laughs> um, having just been there. Um, uh, how robust are the structures around... If we can't... You know, if we're struggling with legislation keeping up with the technology, how robust are the institutional structures around it? And, Malcolm, I'll ask you about the issue of trust and the, the impact of undermining trust as well in just a moment. But, Ed, first... Well, yes... It Seeing as that, that individual in question was half the positions in government, then, you know, he was... <laughs> basically, it wasn't a, a ringing self-endorsement. Yeah. Also not rehearsed. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah, look, it is, it is incredibly important. And um, I think, you know, as I was saying before, we should, one, pat ourselves on the back that, uh, that we seem to be uh, upholding some kind of, uh, of threshold where we will support political conventions, we will punish political liars. Uh, I think the outrage around that particular incident was very reassuring. The scale and the, and, and the length that, that it was um, sustained for, I think would have surprised most political observers, which is a very good thing. So the, the, the way that we ensure that that trust is maintained, if not built upon because it has been eroded, um, we can't just rely on, on the political institutions themselves. We have to really focus on, on the fourth estate whose role it is to hold political institutions to a standard where we can continue to trust them. So what's happened in Australia is we've seen uh, the complete monopolisation of the media landscape by News Corp. And we've seen, especially in regional Australia, uh, news deserts emerge and then they are being filled by Sky News on free-to-air which should be supremely concerning for everyone because there is a ton of research showing that where there is less local news, there is more disinformation. Mm -hmm. And that's going to extend to the levels of trust too. So how do you repair those levels of trust? How do you build that? You invest in our public broadcaster. You provide incentives for public interest journalism because the, the business model won't do that in and of itself. And you support those as consumers of news who are providing that public benefit um, by, uh, by either subscribing or, you know, there's probably all these innovative news models emerging where you can directly support news outlets. So those are the ways that we, we, we sustain the necessary level of trust that is under threat. And Malcolm, if you, if you engage in, if you actively engage in undermining trust, as some of these institutions and individuals have done, surely mm. that's further inflaming the kind of problem you outlined earlier where conspiracy theories can mm. flourish because they don't have a trust trust in these institutions. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, uh, uh, Morrison's uh, sort of secret ministries, if that's the right term, mm. uh, were bad enough from a you know, constitutional, legal, uh, parliamentary responsibility point of view, but there's a very sinister aspect to it, uh, which I don't think we fully absorbed, and that is this, that every conspiracy theorist depends, it is just about everyone, is based on, a, on, on, on undermining the trust of governments. You can't trust the government. They're doing, you know, they're lying to you. They're deceiving you. They're doing secret things, secret experiments that you don't know about. And, of course, when Scott turns around and decides to secretly appoint himself to administer, what is it, half a dozen departments without telling the ministers or the secretaries. It's all completely bonkers, right? It's amazing. <laughs> completely... I mean, I'm prepared to accept that he was a lot weirder than we thought he was. <laughs> I'm I am. I am. I am. I am... I'm prepared, I'm prepared to accept that, but what I cannot understand is how the rest of the system allowed it to happen, and that's why I'm really glad there, there's an inquiry, because I think an inquiry solely into Scott's, you know, what was going on in his head, that would be, that's probably futile, but, but, but a lot, but what the rest of it, you know, PM&C, the PMO, the Governor-General's office, all of that, that's, that really needs examination. But the really, the really damaging thing is every 
nut job, every, and they may not be nut jobs, they may be highly intelligent people who just want to screw up our society, who are saying, you can't trust the government, they're doing secret things, they're concocting secret plans. And you say, whoa, that's a bit wild, isn't it? Hey, look what Morrison did. <laughs> you see, they do do secret things. Maybe, maybe he was appointed to a few other things we didn't know about. It's what Sir Humphrey you, would call unhelpful, probably. It is very unhelpful, mm. yes. So I need to get to these questions. Thank you for them. The first one I have here is... With the growing importance of technology for our society, must we do more to increase the digital literacy of our members of parliament? And I might throw in of individuals, of children as well. What, can, what should we and can we do about digital literacy? Yeah. Ed, do you... yeah well, the question is specifically about members of parliament, yes. but this is, as you say, no, this should mm. be core curriculum for everyone and the, and the long-term solution. And what we're talking about there is not just very narrow skills about how to spot a real headline from a fake headline. This is about teaching the next generation to inhabit an entirely different ecosystem than their parents and, and, and grandparents inhabited. I don't know how to teach my kids how to be responsible social media citizens because I wasn't raised with social media, but I understand the importance of it. So the fundamental uh, uh, risk to our democracy uh, that is posed by these technologies can only be cured if the people who are inhabiting these ecosystems can navigate them healthily. How do I ass assess information I'm receiving from, for bias or for, for truth um, filter? How do I use uh, these technologies responsible? How do I avoid cyberbullying? How am I a responsible digital citizen? How am I enhancing the strength of our democracy through healthy democratic participation rather than undermining it by spreading harmful narratives and, and, uh, and sowing division? Those are core curriculum. Mm. That is, I would posit with apologies to any of the maths teachers in the audience, much more important to the, the long-term <laughs> well-being of our kids than teaching them how to measure the angles of a triangle. Mm. But we don't treat it as core, and I think we need to. I think it'd be good to do both, if you don't mind me saying so. But the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, Smoking is the father no, of a teacher, no, too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Look, no, look, I agree with I what... We're it, only funded for I, one or the other. I, I, I agree... <laughs> I, 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 uh, 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 it's up to a point, Lord Copper. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, uh, look, um, uh, the, the demographic that is most vulnerable to online disinformation is actually, you know, the baby boomers. You know, my, my, my sort of generation, if that's the right term. Uh, younger people are actually already much more discerning. Mm. Um, and I say that, that was always my anecdotal experience that it was generally older constituents who I would meet who had, you know, would present me with crazy stuff, particularly about climate change, and I'd say, oh, my God, what, what are you talking about? Oh, I found it online. Oh, yeah, right, OK, well, just everything online is not necessarily right. I find younger people are much more discerning. So I think, you know, there's hope there. Mm. But, uh, you know, truthfully, you've got, you've got to make sure, you know, we've got to really do everything we can uh, to encourage people to be more discerning and particularly look for sources of trust. Now, this is, again gets back to the point I was making earlier. If you develop a mindset that you can't trust the government, you can't trust business, you can't trust the media, you can't trust anybody, well, that means then you may as well believe anything. There's a question for you, Malcolm, drawing together a couple of things that you've been talking about um, and bearing in mind that it relates to legal action that is on foot. Um, in the, uh, is the upcoming Murdoch versus Crikey case a watershed moment in arresting the trend towards the normalisation of lying? 
you think, I mean, it's a, it's a test case for defamation law, but is it, does, could, it, could it have a, a spin-off benefit in terms of bringing this to the fore, these issues you've been talking about? Yeah, well, I, yeah, it, it could. Uh, I mean, certainly, um, Lucy and I used to practice law, you know, and we had a lot of experience in media law. I don't, I don't think either of us would have advised Lachlan Murdoch to sue. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, I mean, the discovery process is going to be very interesting, particularly when they seek discovery of all of his and his organisation's communications with Trump and his, his uh, supporters. But anyway, yeah, I think it could be pretty interesting, but, you know, these, uh, leaving aside the facts of that, that particular case, you know, the big picture is that, the, that American democracy came right to the edge because of a lie, namely, that Trump had won the 2020 election, a lie that was massively amplified and propagated and promoted by, among others, Fox News. So, who takes responsibility for that? I mean, how do we feel? We put all of our faith, all of our national security is tied to that sheet anchor of the American alliance because it is a beacon of democracy. It was nearly overthrown on January 6, 2021. That's a pretty big deal. We've got to think about it. We've only got a few minutes left and I'd like to get to a couple more questions. And Malcolm, picking up on what you've just said, this one relates to that really, I guess. It says, Mr Turnbull, if you were Prime Minister today, what would be your first step to begin to hold these corporations to account or push them to act more ethically? Well, I, I think the big thing is transparency. Uh, and, I, and I think we need to have a debate. It, we need to have a debate about the algorithm, getting back to where we began. Mm. Look, uh, we understand, as Ed said, you don't want to just be served up with, you know, boring stuff. And obviously, the publisher's got an interest in producing interesting, presenting interesting material, just like a newspaper editor or a magazine editor's got an interest in presenting interesting articles and pictures that people will want to read. All of that makes sense. But there is a social obligation. There has got to be a social obligation to ensure that the public are informed. And that doesn't mean propaganda, but just there's some, you know, just lard a few facts and a bit of balance, just a little, just a few facts. <laughs> not, not alternative facts, <laughs> real facts. And just put, get some balance in there so that, you know, when people are looking for information, when they're looking for information on a particular topic, make sure that there is trusted sources of information that are also being presented because, because, you know, you can, we can talk about free speech a lot and I'm all in favour of free speech, but if the, at the end of the day we have, despite all of our technology, you know, we have a society in which more and more people believe in more and more lies and believe in more and more crazy things, and it's one thing to say that you know, a certain percentage of people believe Elvis is still alive or the world is flat, you know, maybe that doesn't have a lot of consequences. But when they start believing, you know, that vaccines are, 
you know, designed by Bill Gates to poison you, or, you know, Donald Trump won the election in 2020. When they start believing in things in, that are false and in a manner that has real consequences, we've got to make sure that we do everything we can to ensure that they have the information that enables them, hopefully, to be disabused of those falsehoods. And with less than a minute to go, Ed, good luck with this, um, but it, it fits with that. But how do we inject different ideas into feeds, sticking with algorithms, that are increasingly partisan and isolating other facts without being paternal or engaging in positive propaganda? Is there a way to do that? Well, part of it's on the individual. Like I'm uh, saying, if we teach people uh, good digital media literacy, hopefully they will seek a diversity of, uh, of opinions before they form their own. But as Malcolm says, it comes down to these platforms. And we're only talking about a, a couple of companies here the, that were allowed to get incredibly big and unintentionally occupied a space of immense control over society. When that role was performed by the traditional media, we asked in return the expectation they would be very tightly regulated. And media is very tightly regulated in Australia because of that, that power they have over society. That role migrated to social media and we never asked for the same uh, expectation back in return. So that's what we need to do. We need to treat them as quasi hybrid public-private utilities because they are on that scale and they are that important to the health of our society that we need to treat them as such. I'm going to leave that as the last word. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please thank Thanks, Ed Copper and Malcolm Campbell. Thank you. Very good. All right. Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.